Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It's a pleasure to be back with you. My name is Ryan Anderson, for those who I don't know. And uh, we're going to be looking today at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, I know you're in the midst of a series over the Psalms that Darwin and Ryan and others have been taking you through. Today, we're going to continue that look. Uh, If you have a pew Bible, I believe it's page 502 that you can find it. If you're not familiar with the Psalms, it's a rather large book sort of centrally located in the scriptures. And on page 502, you'll find Psalm 103. Um, some of you may know that um, I serve as the RUF campus minister at TCU, and I just want to say thank you guys so much for your continued support, your prayer and encouragement for us. We, we are being upheld. The Lord has been kind to us, and we are grateful for his ongoing work. Please continue to pray for the students uh, that will be coming back in a few short weeks as well and for new relationships with uh, freshmen. Psalm 103, I have a question for you as you're turning there. Can I ask you this? How do you know if you enjoy something? Think about that. How do you know if you enjoy something? What is it? What are the signs that indicate that you delight in something? If a steak is good, how do you know it? If Caravaggio's, I'm going to mess this word up, well, his paintings, if they capture you, how do you know? You see, if if you're watching the Olympics, a perfect floor 10 routine, if it stirs you, if it moves you, How in the world do you know? How does that make you think? How does that make you feel? Well, here we're going to catch a glimpse in Psalm 103 about what moves David. You've learned that the Psalms, that the Psalms by now are quite varied in their content. You've got Psalms of wisdom from the first Psalm. You've got Psalm 22, which is a lament. And today we're going to the other side of the coin, perhaps, as we examine a Psalm of thanksgiving and praise. So if you would read with me Psalm 103, and let's let's understand what the Lord has given to us to hear. Again, Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us. According to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the Lord, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father has com- shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As man, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, 
O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord or of his of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord. O my soul. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God certainly stands forever. Will you pray with me as we ask the Lord to help us to see what he would like to teach us this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need for you to work this morning to reveal to us the real beauty of Jesus. So we're asking this morning that you would do that with a broken arrow and that you would deliver a straight blow through me. Oh, Lord, tend to my words that you might stir the affections and loves of your people, that you might comfort us. We come from all over the map. Some of us haven't walked with you for quite some time. Others of us just wondering how in the world this Sunday morning we found ourselves in a church. Lord, wherever we may be, we find ourselves in the common seat of needing your deep and profound grace and mercy to us this morning. Would you be so kind to show that to us as we examine this psalm? We pray that all glory would be to Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, two years ago, a documentary called Alive, Alive, Alive Inside, told the surprising story of Alzheimer's patients and these periodic moments of incredible memory recall. Men and women who had all but forgotten who they were and the world around them, the faces that they loved so dearly, were having these moments of intense memory recall. And do you know what did it? Do you know what it was? It wasn't looking at pictures. It actually wasn't some sort of special brain surgery or even some sort of medical therapy, taking pills and whatnot that sparked their memories. No, it wasn't. But one thing brought visceral, physical life to the people. What was it? Here it is. It was music. It was headphones in their ear. And they began to come, began to come alive. And as soon as the headphones went on, these elderly patients began to come alive too. One elderly man begins to dance in his wheelchair as he begins to hear music from 50 years ago. And they sing. The family members and the doctors alike were amazed that a world was opened back up to them where memory had almost been gone. But they remembered song lyrics from 50 years ago. One doctor put it this way. Music touches something primal, primal, meaning fundamental, essential. And what medicine is seeing in this video, this documentary, the Psalms assume about us. And that is the Psalms know, as it were, the Psalms know that music buries something deep, deep within us. It's a Trojan horse, if you will, right? It's a way of getting stuff deep into who we are. Try something with me. Let's see if you can do it. Ready? I want you to try to recite quietly in your mind the Star Spangled Banner without singing it. Can you do it? I tried to do it right there in the seat, and this is what came out of my mouth. Oh, say, can you praise the sing of the... I can't even get that far without humming it in my head. Or better yet, kids that are still in the room, you'll have to help us with this. Okay, ready? I don't want anybody to open a hymnal. Nobody take a look at it. Ready? Help us out, kids. Really good and loud. I want adults to follow in if you know it. Okay? 
Jesus loves me. This we, I know. What is it? For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells us so. How did you do that? Did you pull out your hymnal? Did you look at your phone? No. Because music puts something deep into your bones. And we know it. And that is exactly what David is wanting you to see right here in this text. You see, all the Psalms do it. But this particularly is a psalm about the blessings of God. They are songs of the people throughout the ages. And they are meant to get at us, to get in us. You see, my seminary professor, Jack Collins, once said this, that the Psalms shape the affective side of our worldview. They teach us, they shape us, they show us, as it were, how to feel, how to emote. They get at our hearts in that way. Some teach us about sorrow and the right things to be sorrowful about. Others teach us about anger and what to do with that anger. And yet right here, This psalm teaches us about what to do with praise. You see, Psalm 103 is the other side of the affective coin. It teaches us about thanksgiving. It is rejoicing in all that God is for us, has done for us, and is doing in us. Which brings me back to my original question. How do you know if you enjoy something? How do you know? Well, C.S. Lewis nails it. He hits, he hits the nail on the head when he observes this. I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy. There it is. Because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, Lewis is saying that we know we enjoy something when we praise it. Our enjoyment of the thing is complete when we are praising the thing. Think about it. Did you see that catch? Wow. Right? Oh my. This is the best Merlot that I have had in 15 years. You must try it. Five years of remission. It's time to celebrate. Come do so with me. What are we doing? We're praising the thing as an expression of its consummation. The praise consummates the enjoyment and the delight in the thing. And all of these capture this idea. And here's what I want you to see today. That tying these three realities that I've been talking about together, I'll delineate them. That the psalms shape us. That Psalm 103 is about praising. And that praise completes our joy. I want you to see that Psalm 103 is all about our joy. It's all about our delight. But how will David do it? How will he get us there? Well, that's what I would like to look at with you this morning. And in the end, I hope that you will walk away encouraged by this, dear friends. That David is giving us lyrics To put in our mouths that they might get into our hearts about this. The sweeping 
intentional goodness of our God to his children. That is what I hope you walk away with tonight, today. That despite the frailty, the sin, the failures and fears of his people, that God delights in doing them good. And this is where we see first, this first heading underneath the idea of a personal reminder. A personal reminder. Look with me at these first few verses here. Verses 1 through 5. Here David is showing us that we're called to remind ourselves of what God has done for us. David opens his psalm with an expression of praise, doesn't he? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now, at first pass, that might just look like religious jargon, right? Sort of holy speak, but it's not. It's actually David looking at his own heart and saying, Soul, listen up. Praise the Lord. Bless him. You, entire being, give thanks and praise to God. It is self-talk, as it were. But as you well see in verse 2, it's not just self-talk. It is a lyric to call to mind, to remember, to not forget, as David says. You see, David knows his own heart propensity to forget the kindness of God. And so he rouses it by way of reminder. It's not just a reminder of anything, but look with me there. Verse 2, forget not all of his benefits. And what are those benefits that God, that David has in mind? Well, remember the forgiveness he gives. There it is. Forgiving all your iniquity. That he is the one who heals all your diseases. He is the one who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and with mercy. In short, David is teaching us to sing, Soul, don't you forget all that God has done for you. Singing about remembering is what this is all about. Think of the songs that you might know that have something in the title about remembering. These are the ones that I could think of. Sarah McLaughlin's, here it is. What? I will remember you. Some of you know that song. Madonna from the early 90s, late 80s. I will remember. Michael Jackson's, remember the time. Timber Graws, how about that country hit? Ready? Please remember me. I'll spare you the singing of it. How about even the five satins? How many of you know who the five satins are? Yeah, okay, right. Here it is, right? In the still of the night. What's the back melody? I'll remember, I'll remember, I'll remember. Which is interesting. Because all of these songs are about remembering. And that is really, really poignant. Because if a song already reminds us something, this is a double remembering. It's singing to remember. It's remembering to remember. Which, by the way, is exactly what God tells his people they ought to do when he brings them out of Egypt. Do you remember that? He says this, he says, remember and do not forget. There it is. Remember, don't forget. So remember to remember how you provoke the Lord to anger. Don't ever forget that. And God's people throughout the scriptures are referred to as sheep. Not exactly the highest of compliments, folks, because memory recall seems to be so challenging for most of us. Well, this means then. That one of the greatest graces that God gives to you and to me as a picture of his goodness is remembrance. If you are a Christian today, wouldn't you agree that one of your greatest problems is that you forget to remember all that God has done for you and is for you and how he renames you 
Or better said, isn't it true that we tend to call to mind, to think of, and to remember other things? God is out to get me. There is no way he'll forgive me this time. I'll always be like this. I'll never change. Well, this is about as good as life gets, isn't it? But this psalm is telling us that one of the most beautiful spiritual things that we can do is to remind ourselves of what is true about God. Remembering is a spiritual discipline for our good. In other words, we bank on the promises and the truth of what God has told us, and we want to sing it into our beings. Listen to what the great preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to say. He's talking about Psalm 42, and you might remember that very famous phrase from there, Why are you downcast, O my soul? But listen, this is what he says. Have you realized that most of the unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and so on. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Well, yourself is talking to you. Now, this treatment in Psalm 42, he says, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts to talk to himself. Why are thou thou downcast, O my soul? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And that speaking is an act of remembering all of God's kindness to us. You can begin to talk to yourself. You really can. That is not a move of modern psychology. Rather, here it is. It's ancient hymnody. It's ancient music being put into practice. Remembering is a spiritual compass that we use on our journey to remind us of the way that God has set before us. It is a disciplined gift. It is a practice gift given to us by God as an expression of his goodness to us. And yet... Having a skill given to us by God, as amazing as it is, is just one thing. But having his heart, that's quite another, isn't it? Which is where we turn now. As we consider not only a personal reminder, but a purposed compassion that David wants us to sing about. That he longs for us to have in our mouths. Here it is. Look with me at verses 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So he's beginning to enumerate these many blessings that God has done for us. He makes known his ways to Moses. There he is tying our story, the readers of the psalm, to that great historical act known as the Exodus. And dear friends, I want you to see this as well. This is not merely their story. It is yours as well. The God that delivers his people long, long ago is the same one. Still drawing you unto himself. He is the same one redeeming your life out of the pit. He will not always chide, verse 9 tells us. He does not deal with us according to our sins. These sins that were between the worshiper and God. David is saying that no more 
Will he count those against us that no more will they stand between us? So, dear friends, I do not know what your story is, but your sin does not have the final word on what God thinks about you. Some of us desperately need to see that tonight because we look at our lives, we look at our history, we look at what has happened to us and we are crushed by both circumstance and sin. And God has us on our lips say he doesn't treat us according to those at all. As high as the heavens are above the earth. I want you to look at Orion's belt and the Big Dipper. And I want you to consider in that moment that the distance between you and it is the size and scope of God's great love for you. Perfect people? No. For sinners. For sinners. If you're not a Christian here today, may I urge you to see that whatever whatever, whatever noise that you might hear in the news and the culture about what Christianity is, will you please hear it? Maybe a fresh hearing for the first time. That God is merciful and kind. That He delights in removing Our sins from us, as far as the east is from the west. Drive out on Highway 30. Drive west toward Alito. The road crests a little bit. And at that moment, look at your left and see the south. And at that moment, look to your right and see the north. And you'll see the entirety of the horizon ahead of you. And it's like that. That's what God does with our sins. Why? Because he has treated someone else according to our sins. He has laid on Christ the punishment for that. And so now all that's left is nothing but his fatherly compassion, as the scriptures tell us. Look with me right there. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Will you pause with me for just a moment? What comes to your mind when you think of what God thinks of you? Is it his compassionate heart? This is what the scriptures are trying to get deep down into our bones. Many of us think that God is like we are as a parent. Here's what I am as a parent. This morning as I'm shaving, cutting my face up. Little uh, Audrey, my daughter, four year old, starts screaming like crazy at her sister. And I open the bathroom door. I'm like, Audrey, will you please just be quiet? Man, what fatherly compassion, right? So awesome. And then you know what happens when I screw up? You know what I do? What I think of about God when I'm screaming, throwing a fit and a tantrum? Ryan, would you please just get it together? But that is in no way consistent with the compassionate heart of our God. Imagine for a moment that a God that would flee and fly to your aid at every stumbling, at every falling, That as soon as you were beginning to fall, he was there capturing, catching you, saying, it's all right. I'm with you. I'm near you. I care for you. When you have blown it, he sits beside you, puts his arm around you, draws you in and says, it's okay. I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. That is the compassionate heart of God. And here is one of the most cruel things that we can do if we are his children. That is to harbor Hard thoughts 
of our Father's love toward us. Listen to what the great Puritan John Owen wrote. This is majestic. The Father knows that His people can bring no greater hurt to His loving heart than to have such hard thoughts of Him. He knows full well what fruits this bitter root is likely to bear. He knows what alienations of heart, what drawing back, does this sound familiar? What unbelief this bitter root will bring forth. And worst of all, he knows how it leads us to avoid walking with him. How unwilling is a child to come into the presence of an angry father. Consider then that receiving the father as one who loves us, gives him the honor he desires, and is exceedingly pleasing to him. David is saying that all of the intentions of God's heart are for you today. Does this mean that evil, hurt, and pain does not exist? Absolutely not. It does. We do. We are not Buddhists. Pain is real. Sorrow is felt. But God is no less good to us in the midst of those than he is at any other time in our life. Listen to the female Paige Benton Brown write as she was wrestling about her own singleness many years ago. She had just watched her sister, her younger sister, get married. And she writes this. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on the cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years... Because God is so good to me. And I may never have another date. And die an old maid at 93. Because God is so good to me. Not my will but his be done. And until then. I'm claiming as my theme verse. If any man would come after me. Let him. (laughs) It's good isn't it? It might not be singleness, but what is it? What's the sorrow? What's the hurt? What's the pain? The Lord's kindness is there. The conspiring behind all of the events of your life. The Lord is displaying his compassion to you. And you may let your cynicism win. But there's ruin behind that. May I invite you to please even become cynical about your cynicism. To doubt those doubts. That you might see the compassionate, the purposed compassion of our Father. Lastly, thirdly. Not only are these two things present, but also He wants us to sing of His promised love. A personal reminder, a purposed compassion, and a promised love. In verses 15 through 19. Look with me. 
As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. In other words, man exists like that and he's gone. He's gone. Our life is but a breath. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days because they are in fact numbered. Some of them will be few. Some of them will be long. But in the scope of things, they're all like a breath. Imagine taking the dandelion that has dried out and has gone to seed, right? And kids, when you blow on it, what happens? The seeds go everywhere and the flower is no more. That's exactly what the Bible is teaching us about our very lives. But in contrast, did you see it? Did you see what stands in contrast to man in his life? It is what? Well, look with me at verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, literally from eternity to eternity on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. In other words, what doesn't last with man is forever with God. And we see that not only here as I explain it to you, but let's take a look at this word steadfast love. That is an old Hebraic word. It, it, it's, the word is chesed. And it points to God's covenant love. It's not so much a love of emotion like you and I think about when we say, oh, I love that you know, steak or whatever. Or, it is the love of a blood-sealed blood covenant. It harkens back to the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Where God says, I will be your God... And I am making me, you, my people. We are together forever in this. And nothing will ever separate my love from you. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament text there, you're reminded of a ceremony that happened. A covenant ceremony where two parties would walk through the halves of bloodied, split-cut animals. The picture being, if either one of the parties breaks that covenant, may we, the party, be like these animals, utterly cut off and cut in half. And what happens, interestingly, back in Genesis 17, is that God makes a covenant and He Himself is the only one that passes through it. Now, isn't that interesting? Because what does that mean when Abraham or any of his descendants, you and me, fail to keep that covenant? Who is cut off? You? No. But God. And you say, God cut off? How? How in the world would God be cut off? Well, all of the Old Testament begins to whisper his name and to whisper that story. Until where on Calvary's cross? We see God being cut off. We see him being cut for us, him dying, bleeding out for us. Because why? Because God is intent on not treating us according to our sins and what they deserve. He will do so on another's head, on another's back. That's why the old hymn, the old hymn writer could say, upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. That's exactly what lies at the heart 
of the gospel message. The idea of a promised love is a picture of God making a promise that he will not break because he has broken himself. Look with me here. He says this to those who keep his covenant and to remember to do his commandments. I must pause for a moment. Because the astute reader will read this and go, wait a second, dude. You've just been talking about God's grace to people who are failing, to failures, to sinners. And now it's making it sound like, the psalmist is, that we've got to be covenant keepers to be able to receive God's love. Well, listen, the clarifying moment comes in this. That God is not here saying that if you keep these things... If you keep these things, if you obey, then I'll be your God. But rather, obedience flows through, flows from our salvation that he brings us to. Remember, the law of God always came after what? God's deliverance of his people. They were helpless. In other words, I'll put it this way. The only on-road to obedience is the on-ramp on-ramp. Of God's grace and kindness to us. Romans chapter 2. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. But be sure, God's kindness does in fact lead to repentance. The two go hand in hand. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, right? We have been saved by grace, but we are God's workmanship. Meant to carry out and to obey as he calls us forth. Dallas Willard puts it pointedly when he says this, that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. That's the tension that this text is asking us to hold together. And that God delivers helpless people, but he changes us and he makes us lovers, makes us lovers of him and his ways. That's where this is getting at. I'm reminded of a story about this ongoing covenant promises from a student that I worked with. She had grown up in an anomaly Christian home. Uh, her narrative was one, at least in her college years, she was wild with boys, party girl, party scene. And she sat down with me and she said, Ryan, I think I've become a Christian. And I said, well, what? let's talk about that. And we began to flesh that out a little bit. She talked about her you know, involvement with RUF and her Bible studies. And then she said to me, she said, you know, my, I'm paraphrasing here. She says, you know, I grew up in a home where Jesus was just sort of nominally talked about. He was talked about like the groceries on Wednesday evening. But as I understand and I've heard you talk, that God is faithful to me throughout the generations. And that my parents' parents used to be pretty, pretty committed believers. And what she began to see was the faithfulness of God through her family line, in spite of not her own sin and story, but her parents as well. And here's what I want you to see. That the promised love of God runs right through you. None of you know who Mary Frances and Herman were. I I guarantee you, you don't. But they're my grandparents. They've long since to enter into glory. And it's because of them that I know this book. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. Are you perfect? Absolutely not. But here's what I want you to bank on. Is that God is faithful. 
to the promises that he makes. And that when he makes his promise with Abraham, he says, it's not just with you, Abraham, that I will be God. It's what? It's with your descendants too. It's with your children. That's the kindness of God. I'm reminded as well, in closing, of a book called A Royal Waste of Time by the author Marva Dawn. In it, she tells the story of Václav Havel. He's the prime minister or president of the Czech Republic after it split from Czech and Slovak joint uh, nomenclature. They split. And he was asked how the revolution to overthrow communism in the Czech Republic was bloodless and yet had experienced real staying power. And this is what he said. Well, we had a parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew truth so well that we could go out into the streets, that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism fell. Songs. Songs of what is true. Bearing out revolutionizing life. If that can happen in politics and in governments, what do you think it can do in your heart? What do you think it can do in your family? What do you think it can do right here at Fort Worth Press? Nothing less than a revolution, I tell you. Why? Because there was a man who had come. And he was not remembered, but he was forgotten by his father. That you and me might be remembered. That we might be but called to mind. The son did not experience the compassion of the father, but was forsaken by him such that you and I might know God's fatherly smiles. Psalm 103 is both the lyric and the melody to this wonderful, wonderful gospel that points to and finds its fulfillment most certainly in what our God has done in the life, death, resurrection, and now ascension and rule of Jesus Christ. Our God has done everything to bring us home to himself forever. Two words. Remember that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your grace to us. That you have loved us in this way. Take these things and put them deep down into our hearts, we pray. We want to see Jesus made much of. We want our hearts to sing. We want to be changed. We need help remembering. Would you help us to see and to be reminded of your great compassionate love to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been reminded this morning of God's great.